good to see everybody. Glad you're here. We are closing in on the end of Deuteronomy. You know, not too soon for some of you. So we have had this week and next week. And then um, we'll be uh, moving on. But we are in chapters 27, 28, 29, and 30 today. So I thought about just reading it, but that would take the entire time. And then I wouldn't have to get to say anything. So we're going to sort of read selected verses as we go through. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And we need it while we wait with the people of Israel and the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to this special day, a call to renew the covenant of God by the people of God. You teach us that the covenant is not just about outward obedience, but inward change of our hearts. But our hearts can be deceitful. And you want our hearts to be holy for you. So as always, give us a heart in tune with your spirit so we may learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to know God more and to see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, three and a half thousand years ago, God brought a poor nation of more than a million people out of Egyptian slavery. And through a series of miracles, he led them to the foot of a barren, rugged mountain in a desert called Sinai, in what is today known as the Sinai Peninsula at the northern end of the Red Sea. We shouldn't lose significance of the fact that they came to a desert. God deliberately brought the Israelites to a place of total dependence on him. In a desert, such a large company of people have to depend on God for food and water. They had to depend on him for health and safety. So by leading the people into the desert, God is effectively saying, you are totally dependent on me. Physically, you're equally dependent on me spiritually. And as you scoop up the water that flows miraculously from the rock, as you gather up the manna that falls miraculously around you, you will learn to trust me. And as you trust me for health and strength, as you look to me for safety among the surrounding nations, I want you to know that I have brought you into the desert to remind you that you, in and of yourselves, are helpless. There is nothing you can do but trust me fully. You're to trust me for your spiritual well-being, your physical well-being, your moral well-being, just as much as for food. And I was thinking about that and realized that today we are way too confident in our own abilities. We are no longer aware that we depend on God for our food and water, our health and strength, our safety and security. We have our supermarkets and our giant utilities and our social welfare system. And much as God warned Israel back in Deuteronomy 8, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. In almost the same way, we don't think we need God anymore for our moral life, our spiritual life. I mean, the achievements of science and physics and medicine and space have created us uh, in us a conviction that we're masters of our own fate and captains of our own soul. And together with uh, an evolutionary philosophy that persuades us that somehow that every day in every way we're getting better and better, as ludicrous as that may sound. It has led to this fearful prospect that in virtually every area of life today, the creature, us, thinks it knows better than the creator. I read someone uh, had said that the present generation is losing the ability to wonder. And that may be so, but I think we've certainly lost any sense of dependence. Our pride knows few limits. We think we're on the verge of creating life ex nihilo, of manipulating genes omnipotently, of calculating the incalculable, and discovering life on Mars. Anyone who dares suggest the need for moral absolutes has clearly forgotten that we are three and a half thousand years ahead of life in the desert. But before I beat up our current situation too much, as difficult as it may be, let's look at the Israelites for a little bit. They're camped at the Jordan River. They are about to cross into the Promised Land. They have been here for one year. Not 3,500 years. One year. And yet they're suffering all the same issues we are. They're quick to forget the God who created them. They're quick to forget the God who redeemed them, saving them by signs and wonders, leading them through the desert for 40 years. And so Moses has come to one of the third and fourth sermons of this book, and he's come to remind them not to forget God. And that's really our text for today. Once again, it's a lot of text. Four chapters, not going to read it all because it would take the whole time. I'm going to pick a few verses to make some key points. So we're going to go quickly through the first three chapters. They're important, but really want to focus on chapter 30, which is most important. And it all focuses on one day, the day they enter the promised land. So the point of most sermons is this day is coming, and this is what you need to know, and this is what you need to do. And this is how you need to think on that day. Moses presents it as the day that will determine all the rest of their days. And so we start by seeing that Moses tells them it's a day to remember. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 3. It's a day to remember. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Now, we've already been warned a number of times in Deuteronomy that God's people have short memories when it comes to the Lord's mercies. But sadly, the same is true when it comes to God's law. Moses gives them instructions concerning plastered stones, which are going to have the law written on them and will serve as prominent reminders to the people. And then he gives them instructions for an altar. And so they're going to have the law and an altar. And these are to be a priority. They aren't going to be left while Israel addresses 101 other things that need to be sorted out as they enter the land. This isn't something uh, they can get around to at some point when things get settled. It's to be done, verse 2, on the day you cross over the Jordan. There is to be an altar right next to a copy of the law. The law bearing testimony to Israel's inability to keep God's commandments. And the altar giving testimony to their relationship that it can never be based on merit. It has to be based on sacrifice. Burnt offerings, verse 6, represent the devotion to God that Israel owed but failed to give. And then peace offerings, verse 7, showed that the breaking of God's law meant a broken relationship that could only be restored through sacrifice. So they need to remember the law, and they also need the altar. Second, Moses tells them this is a day of contrasts. Verses, uh, chapter 27, verse 9, through all of chapter 28, which is a really long chapter, has 68 verses. It's a day of contrast. I'm going to read Deuteronomy uh, 27, verses 9 through 13. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, here is he carried out in Joshua chapter 8. Now six tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim. That's obviously a more modern day picture. And six tribes will stand on Mount Ebal. If you remember when Porter 
Harlow preached last week. He said, Abraham came. When he first received the covenant, he was at Shechem, which is right in the middle. And so they have come back to the place where they first received the covenant in order to renew the covenant. And six tribes are going to stand on Mount Gerizim reciting the blessings, and six tribes stand on Mount Ebal pronouncing the curses. And after each individual curse, and at the end of the whole recital, all the people are supposed to voice their agreement. This is to impress on them they're not just spectators at another religious ceremony. Much like any of our worship services, each one of them is to be personally involved. Couldn't be clear. While this covenant is between God and the nation as a whole, it's also a personal covenant made with each individual. And now in Deuteronomy 28, special emphasis is placed on the curses. And I'm not going to read them all. They're very graphic, very dark. They're horrifying. And the audience participation and the geography of the place adds to the gravity of the proceeding. These two hills are so close to each other. And they basically confront Israel with the two options. That's the contrast. Blessings or curses. Obedience results in blessing. Disobedience results in curses. If you think about it, there is an echo in these hills, leaving the blessings, but especially the curses, ringing in the ears of the people, literally, as well as metaphorically. You can take down the slide. So the blessings, they focus on the farmer's field and the crops. They also focus on the battlefield and striking fear into the heart of their enemies. But the curses promise drought and defeat. And as the curses continue and they go into great graphic detail, we edge into the area of prophecy because their future captivity in exile is going to be portrayed in vivid terms. So you're going to go to a land you do not know. You're going to serve a king you do not know. You're going to worship gods you do not know. You're going to be in a place you don't know. And it lays out what we know several hundred years down the road will be the exile. Moses is clear that refusing to serve the Lord will inevitably lead to serving their enemies. Now the Apostle Paul is equally clear about that very same thing. He says we're all slaves, either slaves of sin or slaves of obedience. Romans 6 verse 16 do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? The wages for sin slaves is death, while God's slaves will receive as an unearned gift nothing less than eternal life. Later in the chapter, Romans 6, we read, but now that you, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no middle ground. The Lord is either delighting to show his mercy or his justice. We have no grounds to complain about his justice, but every reason to marvel at his mercy. So we have a day to remember, a day of contrast, 
And we have a day for truth, Deuteronomy 29, a day for truth. And I'm going to read a few verses here, starting with verses 1 through 4. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Jumping down to verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the God of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. You have heard the southern phrase, bless your heart. It's a very polite southern phrase. It means you're an idiot. And that's what happens right here. He said he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And then verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So it's make or break time for Israel. They've seen what the Lord can do. The question is, what will they do with his commandments? And the problem is here is there's always those who think they can get away with outward conformity even though their heart isn't in it. And Moses knows there's going to be people like this. Look again at verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And they tell themselves, I shall be safe when nothing could be further from the truth. I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And he's telling Israel, you need to look out for these kind of false witnesses. People who say, I'll be safe or you'll be safe, but we walk in the stubbornness of our own heart. In fact, the book of Hebrews quotes these verses in Hebrews 12. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. A lot of times we read that and we think the person is bitter over something that happened. It's referring back to Deuteronomy 29. The root of bitterness is the person who is giving outward conformity but doesn't believe on the inside. That's the root of bitterness that springs up. Deuteronomy says it's a poisonous and bitter fruit. And the consequences of allowing these roots to grow and bear fruit are, are bitter and visible. We see later in the passage, why such devastation is the question on the lips of the surrounding nations. And the answer is, they provoke their God. And then we jump down to 20, verse 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And in context, it seems to be saying, don't worry so much about what the future holds. Focus, concentrate on present obedience. 
Take care to keep the covenant and the future will take care of itself. The Lord has a secret will that's being worked out in history and of which we have a very limited grasp. But his revealed will is there for all to see it. For the Israelites in the plastered stones that they set up and for us in our Bibles today, we have God's revealed will. Fourth, Moses tells them this is a day to return. And we finally got into chapter 30. A day to return. Starting at verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So the big part of the curse was there's an exile coming. You're going to be driven out. But then, in the very uh, two chapters later, we get the promise. That if you return to the Lord your God, he will bring you back. He will return you to the land that he has given. He will restore your fortune. He'll have mercy on you. And then in verse 11, he says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So the opening of Psalm 30, or uh, uh, Deuteronomy 30, has the same message as the old chorus. There's a way back to God the dark paths of sin. Though I imagine that not many of you are familiar with that old hymn. Well, Israel could be troubled, and they should be troubled, at the detailed depiction of the coming captivity. Chapter 29 says, uh, in chapter 29, chapter 30 says, that's not the end of the story. There is a way back. There's a way back from disobedience, a way back from sin, and a way back from Babylon. Just as in the story of the prodigal son, which is really very much based on the people of Israel, Israel could be sure that they will be welcomed back, provided that their return is wholehearted. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This further promise of return calls to mind the new covenant This promised by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 and by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. Beyond the return from captivity, the Lord is going to change their hearts to ensure they have a love for him and for his commandments, and that would be demonstrated by their obedience. This commandment, Moses says, is reasonable and achievable. It says it's not far from you. It is not too hard for you. And with the giving of the commandment, the Lord is also going to give them the help that's needed to obey it for those who genuinely want to obey it. 
There's no need to send someone to heaven or across the sea. The word has been delivered right to their door. If there's a problem, it's not with the word, it's in their hearts. Now the Apostle Paul takes these words of Moses and adapts them to show that it's ultimately Jesus Christ who puts not the law, but righteousness within our reach by descending from heaven and rising from the dead. He quotes these verses in Romans 10, verses 6 through 11. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is quoting Moses. Romans 10 is quoting Deuteronomy 30, right here. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Having the law in your mouth and heart is one thing, but having faith in Christ in your mouth and in your heart is quite another because we don't get right with God by doing. We get right with God by believing. It's not righteousness based on our works, but based on faith. And fifth and finally, Moses tells him, this is a day to choose. A day to choose, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give them. So we've already seen the stark contrast between blessings and curses. Moses puts it even more bluntly now, verse 15, life and good, death and evil. And there are times that call for decisiveness and this is one of them. Joshua is gonna bring the same challenge to the people in the days to come, Joshua 24. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the New Testament, Hebrews makes it plain that we too are confronted with a choice every time we hear God's word. Hebrews 3 says, starting at verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness 
where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we have these examples from Deuteronomy, from Joshua, and from Hebrews. We have the urgency of the situation, the immediacy of the response, the seriousness of the consequences. And Israel has two options. They're either going to prosper in the land or perish from the land. Now, it sounds like an easy choice. But sinners have always found it hard to choose what's right, even when it should be obvious. Choosing life means choosing to love God. And that will involve, verse 20, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. This phrase, holding fast, we've already come across this five times in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the same word in Genesis 2 that's traditionally translated cleave, as in leaving and cleaving. That's a King James word. But he's saying that's us and God. We are to hold fast. Just as you are to cleave to your spouse, we are to hold fast to him. Holding fast is what we need. But our tendency, verse 17, is to be drawn away. That's what we have. It shouldn't be burdensome for us. God is, after all, our life and length of days. Verse 20. You know, the Apostle Peter didn't always get things right. He didn't always say uh, the right thing. He was is well remembered for putting his foot in his mouth. But he had it right when the Lord gave him the option of leaving and he responded in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He still does. And I compared the holding fast and cleaving to marriage. Whenever I do weddings, Emma, are you listening? We talk about the covenant of marriage. Covenant is made when a couple takes vows or permanent promises before God and each other. And when a woman makes a promise, she thrusts her hand into the unpredictable circumstances of her tomorrow and creating an enclave of predictable reality. She is saying, you can depend on me, I will be there. When a man makes a promise, he creates an island of certainty in an ocean of uncertainty. He's saying, you can count on me, I will be here. And when you make those promises, you have created a small sanctuary of trust within the cultural jungle of unpredictability. And at the heart of these word pictures lies one basic idea. In making this promise, in making this covenant, we create for someone else a safe place in an unsafe world. 
And the amazing part of the promise is how it actually creates this safe place. We take it on our feeble wills to keep this future rendezvous with someone in circumstances that we can't possibly predict. The act is so deeply personal that you offer nothing other than yourself. In the covenant of marriage, you're not offering ways or means for overcoming adversity. You don't offer strategies for finding prosperity. You only offer yourself. And this offer, remarkably, gives the other person an island of certainty, a sanctuary of trust. The commitment to each other given in marriage vows is what provides a safe environment for them to know each other. Without such an environment, such knowing might never happen. It is the promises that provide the safe environment for such learning. And we can say the same of the covenant between God and his people. It's Promises provide the safe environment in which we can know and be known. Only then can we hear what God is really saying to his covenant people. Because essentially, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's telling them and us, my people, the ones who belong to me, who depend on me, know me by the promises that I have made to them. I promise, what I promise is what I am and what I will be to them. Only if they know what I am can they live with me in a sanctuary of trust. They know me by knowing my power to keep my promises. And if this is true, we come to know God through making and keeping uh, our promises to him in return. And this covenant then provides a unique environment which God's people can come to know him more and more, to know him better, because it is stable and safe. Now, the place at which Christians renew the covenant, big picture, is a worship service. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. More particularly, it's at the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate next week. First of all, we have to think of communion as a recommitment to this sanctuary of trust. Too often we think of it uh, only in terms of repentance, and repentance plays a key role, don't get me wrong. But it does so within the larger goals of the covenant, which is to know and be known. And so we admit our failings in order to move forward together. That's true in any relationship, whether it's the covenant of marriage or the new covenant with Christ. Second, we reflect on the history of this covenant. There is a deep history of this covenant. The great advantage of the biblical covenant over a marriage covenant is it possesses this ancient account of our partner's behavior. I mean, we have more than God's promises. We have his entire history of his relationship with his people. And what does that show us? Over the course of thousands of years, God has shown himself gracious and faithful and loving over and over and over. More than that, what's promised in Deuteronomy takes on flesh in the person of Christ. He demonstrated his unlimited commitment to us, his covenant people, at the cross. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we would do well to remember 
that here we commit ourselves again to the new covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we remain in a safe sanctuary of trust where we're invited to know him and be known by him. Now, the difficulty we have with this lies in the messages of the two covenants, old and new. It would sometimes seem like opposites. I mean, the old covenant is characterized by legal stipulations and sanctions, blessings and curses. The new covenant is characterized by grace and mercy. But they're not all that different because both Deuteronomy and the New Testament ground the hope of humanity in the very same thing, the grace of God. I mean, we look at Deuteronomy and we see Moses. It looks like he's holding out no hope for the people's obedience. He basically tells them, you need to obey the law, but we know you're not going to do that. And there's an exile in your future. And yet he foresees the future beyond that for God's people. He says, you'll return to the Lord. You'll return to the land. You'll return to obedience with all your heart and with all your soul. How does that happen? How can he make that claim? The answer comes in a very fleeting comment in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It's like a bolt out of the blue. It strikes and then it's gone. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The answer we learn is that the Lord himself will accomplish the changing of our hearts. He will accomplish for Israel and for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And through this act, our hearts will be turned towards our covenant God. Now, if you listen to some speak of grace, you think it erases the need for us to pursue God in the first place. Nothing could be further than the truth. Grace itself presumes a context of need. We can't comprehend grace until you know, we've tried and failed to obey Christ perfectly in all circumstances, everywhere, at all times. You think about it, a person sitting in a backyard wading pool cannot hope to appreciate lifeguards at the beach. But a man who's been pulled out to sea by a riptide and has swum himself into exhaustion and it finds himself face down in the water waiting for the end, only to have a lifeguard pull him to safety and revive him, that man will have a great appreciation for lifeguards. So it is with grace. We can only recognize it from a perspective of need. People don't often associate grace with the book of Deuteronomy, but grace is written into the very DNA of the book. The central call of Deuteronomy is for people to love God with all your heart and with all your soul, a task that the people will fail at time and time and time again. And yet Moses holds out this hope because he sees this solution that God himself will accomplish for his people what they could not do for themselves. Our relationship with God could never be maintained on merit. It has to be based on sacrifice. There needs to be a peace offering to show that the breaking of God's law could only be restored through sacrifice. If you remember, or perhaps you saw, the movie 
The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis describes Aslan in the climactic scene. He says that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That's the offering. That's the sacrifice. That's the promise of the covenant, and it's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' perfect life earned the blessings. His sacrificial death took the curses for us. And as he himself said, as you will hear next week, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. That's a covenant promise. And God has given it to you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you once again that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to love you with all our heart and with all our soul. We love other things. We put people before you. We put ourselves before you. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. And all the while, you're asking us to remember your word, to return to you, to set our hearts on you, to renew the covenant with you. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to return, enable us to remember all that you've done for us and in us. Enable us to choose life, for you are our life and length of days. Grant that we may be people who love you so that we may trust your promises and work in each of our hearts, change our hearts as we learn to hold fast to you and to your word. And through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the one who confirmed the covenant with us at the cross through the sacrifice of himself, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.